0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub
1: Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Matt Zelinsky, a philosophy professor and director of the Center for Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy at San Diego University. He's also the co-author of the fascinating new book, The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism, which sets out a sweeping intellectual history of libertarian ideas. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the origins and evolution of libertarianism, why it's not a synonym for conservatism, and if we may be on the cusp of something like a libertarian moment. Matt, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks,
2: Sean. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you.
1: Let's start with a definitional question, if that's okay. What does it mean to be a libertarian in your mind, and how does it differ from being a classical liberal or a contemporary left liberal?
2: Right. So this is a question that seems like it ought to be very easy to answer, uh, but actually it's one that my co-author John Tomasi and I struggled with a a great deal in writing the book. Um, There are libertarians out there who will uh, give you a simple answer to that question, right? That someone is a libertarian if they believe in the principle of non-aggression, which says that uh, it's always wrong to initiate or threaten the use of force against another individual. Um, But and that's fine for, for those libertarians, but there are a lot of libertarians out there who don't believe in anything like the principle of non-aggression. Uh, and the same goes for a lot of other purported definitions of libertarians. There's a variety, a very wide variety of libertarian thinkers, both past and present. And what we wanted to do in this book was to come up with a definition that encompassed all of those thinkers. Uh, and to do that, we wound up thinking of libertarianism in terms of a family. Uh, it's a family of thinkers uh, who agree upon a rough set of ideas, but within that family, there's broad disagreement about the ranking of those ideas in terms of their importance, the way in which those ideas ought to be interpreted. Um, but all libertarians essentially believe in, we think, six core ideas being importance and significance of private property. Um, They're skeptics of authority and, in particular, skeptical of government authority. To the extreme version of that is a kind of anarchism, where they deny the existence of any legitimate government authority whatsoever. Libertarians believe in free markets, uh, often viewed as kind of a corollary of private property. If you own the right to something, then you have the right to trade that uh, with another individual voluntarily. Uh, Libertarians believe in what's called spontaneous order. So they believe, in other words, that social order uh, is something that can emerge through the voluntary actions of individuals. It's not something that needs to be imposed upon society from the top down. Right? It can emerge from the bottom up. Libertarians are individualists. They believe in the moral significance of the individual, that the individual is essentially the fundamental moral unit of society, the bearer of rights, um, and that those rights, those individual rights are in many ways sacrosanct uh, and absolute. Uh, And libertarians believe, of course, in, in liberty. This is where the name libertarian comes from. Uh, libertarians believe in the importance of individual liberty, and particularly what philosophers call negative liberty, meaning the right to be left alone by other people, um, right? the right to have their, their person, their property not interfered with either by under, other individuals or by the government. So, again, there's a lot of variation in how libertarians put together those ideas. And, you know, one of the overarching themes of the book is just the tremendous variety and pluralism within libertarianism, both as a historical doctrine and still today, and in particular, the way in which those ideas can be interpreted and combined in ways that lead either in sometimes quite progressive and radical directions and other times in more reactionary and conservative ways. That's
1: a great overview of how the book has comes to think of what it means to be a libertarian. Before we delve into the history and evolution of libertarianism, do you want to just unpack how that definition differs from how you think of classical liberalism?
2: Yeah, yes, thanks. So you asked that already and I I glided over it. Um but yeah, so on my on the view we put in the book, um libertarianism is very closely related to what a lot of people call classical liberal political thought. Um, by classical liberal here, people often refer to um, an older doctrine that emerged in the writings of people like Adam Smith, for instance, uh, you know, founder of modern economics and author of The Wealth of Nations, uh, who argued very famously for international free trade and what he called the system of natural liberty, which is a fairly limited government that was confined to keeping the peace, providing public goods, and so forth. Um, People like John Locke, um, who inspired the American founding fathers in the writings of the Declaration of Independence, right? this idea that government exists to serve the interests of the people, and when it fails to serve those interests, when it fails to protect their rights, it's the right of the people to alter or abolish that government. People like David Hume, for instance, um All of these people believed in a lot of the same things that libertarians believed in, right? They believed in limited government. they believed in free markets. They believed in private property. What distinguishes libertarianism from those earlier classical liberals on our view is the the radicalism and the absolutism with which libertarians held to those principles. Um, for libertarians, private property was not merely an important thing, one important thing among many. Uh, that is to be balanced against other considerations so that when we're making public policy, maybe sometimes we respect private property, maybe sometimes we override it just depending on the circumstances. No, for libertarians, private property was a moral absolute, uh, never to be violated under any circumstances. And in fact, for libertarians, All of these ideas, right, private property, free market, skepticism of authority, they all hold together in this kind of coherent intellectual system, right? So, like, why, for instance, why is government to be limited so strictly? It's because we believe in individuals... Fundamental property rights in themselves, which gives rise to their ability to acquire property and external resources, which gives rise to the right to engage in voluntary trade, which gives rise to the fact that if government was to expand its powers, it would necessarily interfere upon some of those preceding rights. So it's all this kind of tight logical system with no gaps, no room for uh, wiggling or compromise in a way that. Is actually quite foreign to a lot of the earlier classical liberals. So it's simply a much more radical, hardcore view uh, than classical liberalism. It prompts the question what's the origin story of
1: libertarianism, according to your definition, and who were its early exponents? So, as we see
2: it, and, and this is one of the novel um, propositions of the book, as I take it. Um, so, a lot of people had sort of traced libertarian ideas back to you know, Adam Smith, and, and even further, some people call Lao Tzu one of the first libertarians. Um, and again, I think you could find some, some libertarian friendly ideas in those people. But libertarianism as a, as a system, right, as, as something distinct from classical liberalism, we think it emerged only relatively late in the game. Um, that is to say, roughly in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, around 1850, actually. Um, and it emerged first uh, in Britain and France, uh, and then somewhat later and in strikingly different form in the United States. Um, so we could talk about the United States a little bit later, but uh, in terms of Britain and France, what seemed to have sparked the development of libertarianism um, was. The was something new on the political scene, which was socialism as an active and revolutionary force. So people had been talking about socialism in Europe for a while. It was an idea often viewed as a kind of utopian idea, um, often viewed as a kind of voluntaristic utopian idea, so that people could come together as a society, um, share their goods equally. Uh, live apart from uh, the broader market structure of society. But around the middle of the 19th century, socialists became quite politically active and revolutionary to the point where it seemed like a real threat uh, to a lot of people who believed in in private property and and other libertarian ideals, Um, such that that the old kind of wishy-washy classical liberalism Simply wouldn't do anymore, right? You know, we we tried the ideas, we tried making concessions, right? We tried um, compromising on the principle of liberty and giving giving this power to government or taking this power away from private property owners. And look where that's getting us. If we don't draw a line in the sand right now uh, and defend these principles as moral absolutes, then we're just going to slide down the slippery slope all the way to dictatorship essentially um, so so you you see this real hardening of classical liberal ideas in France in uh, among the economists like uh Frederic Bastiat was a was a French economist in the 18 uh, 1850s um 1840s 1850s are when he did most of his important writing uh, another Gustave de Molinari uh was was part of the same kind of economic society in in France as as Bastiat was in Britain you see people like uh Herbert Spencer uh who publishes his uh, social statics around this time which is one of i think the first kind of systematic libertarian treatises and spawns a whole kind of um libertarian movement in Britain that lasted up till the end of the 19th century. These people called themselves, they didn't call themselves libertarians, they called themselves individualists, which is one of the origin stories for the name of the book. Um, And it's all, again, it's all kind of in reaction to this rising, perceived rising socialist threat at the time.
1: Is libertarianism in your mind a left-wing or right-wing worldview? why has it historically tended to be grouped together with ideas and values
2: associated with the right great question uh, and the answer is it depends uh, you know is it is it a right-wing or a left-wing view it, it depends it depends on which libertarian you're talking about which version of libertarian ideas you're talking about um, it has taken and continues to take many forms um both as a historical and a contemporary movement. So in you know in broad outlines what we can say is this. Um in the 19th century in its origins uh libertarianism was was much more radical uh and much more progressive uh than it has the reputation of being today. Um so you know you take somebody like Frederick Bastiat for instance. Uh, who was a staunch supporter of free trade, a staunch opponent of big government, a staunch opponent of redistributive taxation, um, which are things that are, you know, associated with conservatives today. Um, But he viewed himself as a a radical, as a, and and in fact, sat on the left side of the French assembly, right? We talk about left wing, right wing today, you know, that derives from the French assembly. Uh, And Bastiat was seated on the left, along with Uh, Proudhon, who was a a French socialist anarchist, uh, but they thought they had enough in common uh, against the defenders of the status quo, um, right, that they viewed themselves as being of the left. Um, They were radicals for free trade. Uh, In the United States, early 19th century libertarians were radical crusaders for uh, abolition, the abolition of slavery. Uh, They were radicals for women's rights. Um, uh, they were radicals for, um, you know, in some cases, the treatment uh, of children, right? They viewed children as having many, uh, if not all of the same rights as adults and being entitled to, um, equal treatment in, in ways that were quite incompatible with existing, uh, social norms. Um, they were radical critics of militarism and colonialism. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of views that, we would now characterize as as very very left wing, uh, very radically left wing. Um, were kind of the mainstay of libertarian thought in the 19th century. Uh, in the 20th century, things changed a bit. Um, so, over the course of the 20th century, the issue of socialism kind of became even more pressing than it was in the 19th century. Especially in the United States, where in the 19th century socialism simply wasn't a thing at all, right? So in you know 19th century Britain and France, you had active revolutionary socialist movements. Uh, in 19th century United States, you didn't. You had you had communes, you had voluntary communes, but libertarians viewed that as perfectly compatible with libertarianism, right? No threat at all. Like if you want to go live your life you know, off, off in a town somewhere and share all your stuff and abolish the market. Fine. Like, go ahead. As long as people can come and go freely, that's no threat to liberty at all. That's a, that's an exercise of liberty. Um, but in the 20th century, right, um, you had two things in the, in the United States in particular, which is where kind of the center of gravity of libertarian thought sort of shifted, uh, over the course of the 20th century, away from Britain and France and and into the United States. Um, you had the rise of international kind of expansionist socialism under the auspices of the Soviet Union. Um, And you had the perceived threat of creeping socialism at home, uh, especially through FDR and the New Deal. A lot of of libertarians perceived that as, again, these first steps down the slippery slope. Uh, And not not without some reason. At this time, right, FDR and, and many people who were advising FDR We were really convinced that the Soviet Union was showing the way forward for, you know, the new, the new mode of economic progress. Um, And so they were traveling to Russia, visiting, learning and bringing ideas home for implementation. So a lot of libertarians thought like, look, we've got to, we've got to stop this. We've got to, um, we've got to make the defeat of socialism our number one priority. And so economic liberty. understood as this this goal of protecting the free market, defeating socialism, that became the overriding consideration for libertarians and all the other stuff that those 19th century libertarians had concerned themselves with, women's rights, anti-slavery, anti-colonialism, anti anti militarism that all really receded into the background. And you got this Kind of alliance of convenience between libertarians and conservatives, both of whom were opposed to socialism, both of whom were opposed to the New Deal, um, that maintained itself throughout most of the 20th century. Not without its tensions, um, but for the most part, libertarians and conservatives kind of came down on the same sides of what they both viewed as the most important issues of their time.
1: Yeah, let's stay on that point, Matt. You've been a critic of what's sometimes called fusionism to describe this intellectual or at least political alliance between libertarians and conservatives in the middle of the 20th century. Frank Meyer, an editor at National Review Magazine, is credited with conceiving of fusionism. His basic point was that freedom and virtue require one another in a coherent socio-political framework. Why, in your mind, is Meyer and the fusionist project ultimately mistaken?
2: Yeah, great. It's, it's it's interesting because I actually have a lot of sympathy for Meyer. Um, I you know who was who was both a libertarian and a um, and a kind of conservative thinker on, of his of his own right. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathy with the conservative intellectual tradition from which he draws, uh, and and a lot of con- sympathy with libertarianism. So I'd really like for all these things to fit together in one n- nice and tidy package. I just don't think that they do. I don't think that it works. Um, and and the reason i think is that libertarianism is fundamentally a radical political ideology um right D- distinct from classical liberalism right so i i can see a kind of fusionism between classical liberalism and conservative quite easily um it's it's fu- the fusion of libertarianism and uh, and conservatism that I think is is problematic. Look, if you're a, if you're a libertarian, right, and you believe in absolute property rights, um, and an absolute free market and an absolutely limited government, then instituting those things would require a wholesale and sweeping transformation of our society. So regardless of what society you live in, right, because there's nothing anywhere in the world that's anywhere close to a libertarian society. So we're talking about a major revolution in economic and political institutions, especially especially if you're an anarcho-capitalist of the likes of Murray Rothbard or, or Molinari, right? This is the abolition of the state and the replacement of the state with a set of competing private protection agencies that are going to assume all the protective roles of government. Like, now, would that work? Maybe, like, I can... The arguments there's there's some logical force to the arguments that the libertarians make, but it's a it's a radical transformation of precisely the sort it seems to me that conservatives like you know Edmund Burke or Michael Oakeshott um would uh, be very nervous about implementing and Frank Meyer too to, to to his credit I think uh you know Frank Meyer viewed this kind of rothbardian strand of libertarianism as um in a sense hostile to the kind uh, and incompatible with the kind of fusionist project that he was envisioning um so i think like if there's a fusion to be made there um it's going to be with a more moderate form of libertarianism if you want to call that i would i'd prefer to call it classical liberalism but whatever but i think you know c- can can you care about property rights and free markets and limited government and think that there's an important role for conservative ideas of virtue and tradition, absolutely. No problem with that at all. Um, but you if you're going to be an absolutist about either one of those two things, right? Then it's not going to work. And that that goes for the conservative too, right? So if you think that the promotion of virtue is the highest end uh, of society, then that's not compatible with individual liberty, because it's going to mean that in some cases, uh, you're going to come down on the side of, you know, restricting access to pornography, right, or restricting, uh, you know, zoning in such a way as that, you know, certain adult adult and, and vicious activities are, are segmented away from the population. Um, so, you know, you, you can only have one master, right? Either it's liberty or it's virtue, um, but you can't, you can't serve both at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point. Just in parentheses, I think it was Louisville Buckley Jr.'s brother-in-law,
1: Brent Brozell, who actually coined the phrase fusionism. And of course, he rejected the project outright precisely because he thought political alliance with libertarians would impede his own efforts to promote a a more virtuous society. So it's a good point that there are critics of fusionism from both libertarian side and the conservative side. Matt, I want to put a hypothesis to you that I've had for some time about libertarianism and get your reaction. It seems to me one of its biggest challenges is that it explicitly failed to answer the, quote, for what question, by which I mean its treatment of freedom or liberty as an end in itself fails to provide an answer to people's more normative or even transcendental questions. What do you think about that? And to the extent that you find it persuasive, is it a case that libertarianism needs to attach it itself to a broader worldview of some kind?
2: Yeah, so... um let me start by just echoing your, your uh appreciation of of Bazell here. Uh, I think he he wrote in to my mind one of the most pervasive or persuasive uh critiques of the fusionist project. Um and though though I think in some ways he came down on the wrong side of the issue and him and him and his family went in some, some strange directions uh later on. But uh but I thought just as a as an intellectual critique of fusionism, um Bazell kind of drove the nail in the coffin. Um in terms of this idea of you know what what for what why freedom right because because freedom seems like a pretty thin end in itself right um a, a pretty thin end around which to center a human life uh, for instance right we we view most of us view freedom as instrumentally valuable we want to be left alone but we want to be left alone so that we can pursue meaning in some important domain of our life whether that's through our work through our family through our church through our um through our neighborhood um but the the liberty the liberty isn't the goal liberty is simply a necessary means for the realization of some other goal so is the fact that libertarianism seems to place liberty as its highest end is that a is that a fundamental defect of libertarianism? Um, I, I think there are problems with libertarianism. I'm not sure that's one of them, uh, actually. I think that, that that might be just okay um, if you conceive of libertarianism as a political philosophy, a philosophy about what the state ought to do or ought not to do, uh, or as some some libertarians put it, it's a, it's a theory about the proper use of force. Um, if that's all it is, um, it doesn't have to answer every question, right? It doesn't have to answer questions about what makes for a meaningful life. Um, right? That's up to individuals to decide, right? All you know, libertarianism just kind of sets the ground rules for when one person or group of persons can coercively interfere with someone else, um, and then it's up to everybody to decide where and how to pursue meaning in their lives. Knowing that you know we're we're going to disagree, uh, and that these these, as this isn't a way libertarians typically put it, but you know, important twentieth century philosopher John Rawls says that um, you know r- persistent reasonable disagreement about the good is a permanent feature of the human condition. Right. In other words, we're always going to disagree about what makes a good life, and that disagreement isn't simply a byproduct of kind of obvious mistakes right that can be pointed out and corrected uh, it's it's a reasonable disagreement and so our political institutions have to be designed in a way that uh, accommodates uh and and um maybe accommodates isn't strong enough a word but um it's sort of built on the the fact of of reasonable disagreement and i think libertarianism can can make some claim to to taking that disagreement seriously um now i do think right so i do think that although libertarianism doesn't need to provide an answer to the question of what makes a life meaningful or what the highest good is um you do need to have you do need to explore those questions in order to determine whether libertarianism is an adequate political philosophy right so i think that you know in other words, you can't, you can't answer the question of what the role of the state ought to be until you have some theory about human, human good. Um, even if that theory is, well, there's no one answer to the question, right? There's, there's a lot of different reasonable answers, but you have to explore those ethical questions first, because in a sense, ethics is, you know, prior to, um, politics, right? Uh, just on a, a kind of fundamental philosophical level. Um, but I think, you know. A political theory doesn't doesn't have to answer all questions. and probably shouldn't try to answer all questions um, for for fear of becoming kind of overreaching its its uh, um, its scope. That's a good segue to my next question. A lot of
1: historical political economy has occurred in a cultural context in which there was a lot of social capital, typically in the form of Judeo-Christian ideas and values, can libertarianism, in your mind, operate absent some form of moral or values-based framework? In other words, Matt, can a society exercise individual freedom well in the absence of some form or forms of moral philosophy?
2: Uh, I, I think the answer to that is, is pretty clearly no. Um, right? Uh, and, not, and not just moral philosophy, but uh, a kind of, ingrained habits of moral behavior. If you're a libertarian, you think that government basically ought to keep its hands off of society, hands off of the economy, hands off of people's private lives, hands off education. Um, And you might think that simply because you think that um, interfering in those ways would be a violation of individual rights. So it's wrong for the state to interfere kind of regardless of what the consequences of the states interfering would be. Um, other libertarians care more about the consequences. The other libertarians are libertarians because they think that libertarianism would lead to a desirable state of affairs. It would, it would make us wealthier or more virtuous or, or what have you. Um, but whatever kind of libertarian you are, um, you, you care to some degree about how this is going to work in practice. Right. Even the libertarians who are hardcore believers in individual rights still believe and hope that this is all going to work out okay. Right. That you know a free market isn't going to lead to an economic disaster, um, that that people, you know, aren't going to be walking around illiterate and uneducated because the state stepped out of public schooling. So so the consequences matter. But I think, you know, what the consequences of liberty would be depends a lot on what the culture of of the people is, um, you know, who are living under those libertarian institutions. Um, Freedom, I think, at the end of the day, requires a kind of responsibility. It only works with a kind of responsibility. Um, It only works with a certain degree of social trust, right? Uh, if, If people can't cooperate with each other, um, because they're they're constantly looking over their shoulders or worrying that somebody else is going to be taking advantage of them or trying to take them, themselves, take advantage of somebody else, then markets simply aren't going to work very well. Limited government's not going to work very well. And maybe some alternative system would work better, um, right? I mean, maybe some more paternalistic regulatory state would work better. I mean, that's hard to say as a general principle. But I do think, right, if you're a believer in freedom, then Uh, It really matters how you think a free people would comport themselves uh, and whether they can take on the responsibility uh, for for all of the things that the state isn't doing anymore. Um, Because at the end of the day, right, it's, it's not as much as libertarians like to talk about institutions, about markets and property rights and things like that. Institutions are only as good as the people who constitute those institutions. And so if the people who constitute those institutions aren't trustworthy, aren't responsible, uh, then then you're not going to get good results. That's a great
1: answer, Matt. If I may just follow up, do you think libertarian thinkers dedicate an adequate amount of their time and intellectual attention to the cultural conditions that represent a necessary
2: condition for libertarianism to manifest itself in practice? Some, I mean, I think there's there's kind of a division of labor among libertarians. I think this is this is not a completely neglected topic uh, of of thought and of research. Um, and and this is one I think of the the benign influences of the fusionist movement is that it got people thinking about precisely these kinds of questions, right? So even if even if as a technical matter I think that the the fusionist project is um, is doomed to fail, I think it. Uh, th- there's there's a lot of value in exploring questions such as this that are related to fusionism, right? Which is, you know, what are the cultural or moral preconditions of a free society? And so you you get people like there's a there's a big kind of fusionist project at um, the American Institute for Economic Research right now where people are are thinking about this kind of things. There are broadly speaking kind of right-leaning or conservative libertarians you know, people like alex salter come to mind uh who are writing about this kind of issue a, a previous guest on hub dialogues I, I ah, say. excellent yeah 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 so um so it's 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 getting attention i mean it's a hard it's a hard problem so i don't think we've we've solved it yet but um
0: i'm i'm i think there's there's a lot of interesting work and, and thought being done on the area Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca.
1: Let me ask you about that division of labor. You and your co-author make the case that libertarianism is splintering into three separate factions, what you call paleo-libertarianism, bleeding heart libertarianism, and left libertarianism. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, what has led to this splintering? And second, what are the distinguishing characteristics between the
2: three groups right so what in terms of what led to the splintering i think uh again going back to the story of how libertarianism took a kind of rightward turn during the 20th century what what caused that rightward turn was the perceived imminent threat of socialism right both in terms of the new deal and in terms of international socialism with the collapse of socialism towards the end of the 20th century the collapse of the Soviet Union, and really the collapse of socialism as as an intellectual doctrine. Uh, I mean, people still talk about socialism today, people still call themselves socialists today, but when you ask them what they actually mean by that, nobody really means what they used to mean, which is kind of the central management of the economy, right? The state ownership of the means of production, you know, five-year plans and all of that stuff everybody left right and center recognizes now that that idea is is dead so when people talk about socialism today mostly what they're talking about is something like sweden uh, which is a market economy you know albeit one with a heavy amount of of redistribution and a, and a significant welfare state right so so socialism kind of dies and and in a sense socialism was the glue that held all these disparate elements Together, both both libertarians and conservatives, and also different kinds of of libertarian, right? So in the you know you had libertarians who were quite radical, um, and and in many ways uh, direct heirs to the kind of progressive radical ni- libertarians of the nineteenth century, um, and you had other libertarians who were which are much more conservative, um, and and so you start to see this this splintering. Uh, within the libertarian movement, I think you see a similar splintering within the conservative movement, right? A lot, a lot of head scratching going on to this day about what conservatism is, how that fits in with, with populism and nationalism and all these other ideas. Libertarians are doing precisely the same kind of soul searching. Um, so you have some, some libertarians like, like my, my co author and I, uh, are kind of aligned with this, this idea of bleeding heart libertarianism, which was an attempt to, reconcile libertarian ideas with um a more progressive or or characteristically left-wing concern with social justice um a concern for the the poor for the vulnerable for the marginalized for uh issues of, of racial justice and gender injustice um that's that's one kind of project uh a different kind of project we call the left libertarian project um is a, I think in some ways, a smaller, maybe more fringe project these days, but, uh, it's, it's really an attempt to kind of directly go back to these radical 19th century libertarians like Benjamin Tucker and Gustave de Molinari and resurrect this, a fairly radical and anarchic libertarianism, but to argue that this would actually, um, lead to many of the outcomes that people on the left have traditionally favored such as uh, a greater number of sort of worker management firms, uh, a significant reduction in economic inequality, and so forth. Um, and then there's this third movement, this paleo movement, which is an attempt to, um, in some ways, it's 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 a maybe a kind of a radical heir to the fusionist project, um, right? So it's an attempt to reconcile. And a conservative emphasis on virtue with libertarianism, but also with a kind of populist nationalist element added in that wasn't necessarily present in the in the earlier version of, of fusionism. Right. And so a lot of paleo libertarians um, are, for instance, um, you know, much more isolationist than than Meyer was uh, or a lot of the earlier fusionists was. Um, much more uh, anti-immigration I think than uh, many of these earlier libertarians were uh so they tend to take a kind of culturally right stance on um a, a lot of, of issues like foreign intervention and immigration and abortion uh for instance in a way that distinguishes them from from other libertarians uh and all of them all of them seek to ground their their different libertarian views on these core set of libertarian principles right which i think is just again goes to show the inherent flexibility of those principles, right? Like what is what is private, what does it mean to support private property? Um, you can make the argument that if you believe in private property, you ought to be pro open borders because anytime the state interferes with immigration restrictions, it's preventing sort of property owners on both sides of the border from entering into voluntary and mutually beneficial exchanges. Um, or, or you could make a kind of private property argument, uh, for restricted immigration and argue that, um, because we live in a non libertarian society with a heavy welfare state, anytime you allow immigration, that's going to lead to the violation of property rights through increased taxation or redistribution or, you know, impositions on so called public property. So you could take the same argument and, and spin it, the same idea rather, and spin it in, in two radically different directions, um, which is why in some ways, you know, it's just it's hard to know where somebody stands on a lot of the issues that you care about just because, you know, they're libertarian, right? Libertarianism is a very flexible ideology in a, in a lot of ways, right? And it can be interpreted or twisted uh, in a lot of different ways, depending upon your your ideological
1: I would just say, Matt, that that answer will resonate a great deal with Canadian listeners who have observed Canada's most high profile libertarian political figure, Maxime Bernier, go from being a pretty conventional free market libertarian in the early 2000s to evolving into something resembling a paleo-libertarian today in his capacity as leader of the Populist, or the People's Party of Canada, rather. And there's been a presumption that that change is been influenced by political opportunism. But I think what you're saying, I mean, of course, without knowing Bernier himself, that there could, in theory, at least, be a degree of intellectual consistency within that kind of political transformation.
2: And we've seen the same kind of thing in the United States, and the Libertarian Party of the United States has taken a very significant turn over the last couple of years um, in a way now that it looks uh, very, very populist, very, you know, very kind of alt-right in some ways. Um, And I'm I'm also watching with great interest uh, what's taking place in Argentina right now with the, the candidacy of Javier Millet. Um, who uh, is going into a runoff election next month for, for the presidency, um, describes himself as a libertarian anarcho-capitalist, um, but is also described, and not without some reason, as a kind of right-wing populist on the model of you know, Bolsonaro. Um, and, and you can see both of those kinds of things in his rhetoric. Uh, so the question is, you know, how, how would he actually govern if he had power? And I think the answer to that has to be, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, you, can't, you can't really predict these things just because he's pledged verbal commitment to certain abstract libertarian concepts like free markets and private property. You know, how those things actually work, work in practice depends a lot on how he interprets those ideas.
1: Although there's been mistaken claims in the past of a coming libertarian moment. Is there a good case between the state's pandemic failures and the rise of identity politics, which effectively aims to judge people based on group categories rather than as individuals, that the current mix of economic and social conditions favor libertarianism? If so, Matt, how can libertarians seize on the opportunity?
2: Well, I'm pessimistic about this, I guess. Uh, and, you know, and not, and not just because, uh, You know, this would be like the eighth or ninth predicted libertarian moment that has failed to materialize. But um, but I just don't see conditions right now as being particularly ripe for libertarianism at all. Um, I think that um, nationalist sentiment is um, at uh, at a higher point now than I have seen it before in in my lifetime. Um, and that that is um, in deep, deep tension with some of the most fundamental commitments of, of libertarianism uh, and also just tend, tends to turn people's interest in and attention away from the kinds of issues that libertarians promote, like, you know, free trade or the importance of individual freedom. You know, nationalism is kind of an inherently a a collectivist ideology is an ideology that think encourages us to think of ourselves in terms of our, of our group identity, uh, and in terms of the conflict of our own group identity with, with others groups. Um, so that I think is, and, and that combined with the kind of rise of identity politics, which is, you know, very similar in its kind of collectivist, uh, approach to, to, uh, you know, the way it encourages people to think about themselves. Um, I just I don't see libertarians um, as as having a compelling answer to the the identitarian movement. Um, And I I haven't seen them embracing their compelling answer to the nationalist movement. I think libertarians do have a good response to nationalists. Uh, They just aren't making it. They're unfortunately, you know, going over to the nationalist side, at least in the United States. Um, And as for identity politics, this is just something that libertarians have always been, at least since the 19th century, uh, fairly weak on. Um, And so there's this conversation taking place about, you know, like the role of of gender and sexual identity. And and libertarians could, I think they could develop a compelling contribution to that conversation. Um, but they they just haven't so far. And so libertarians, as I see it, they're sidelined right now. They're just they're not the enemy um, like they were for much of the 20th century. Um, but they're just they're not they're not relevant uh, in a way that that makes them a viable political force. And I, I'm afraid I just don't see that changing anytime soon.
1: One of the obstacles for libertarianism as a political force has been its tendency to political purism and an unwillingness to make typical. Political compromises, as we've discussed, the book observes that this radical streak has long been part of the libertarian movement, perhaps in fact its defining feature. Let me ask you, is it a bad thing in your mind? Maybe put differently, can and should libertarians overcome their aversion to ideological compromise in order to make political gains?
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I think uh I'm a I'm a pluralist about this kind of <clears throat> question, I guess. Um, I'm a pluralist about a lot of things. <laughs> but I think there are There are a lot of different libertarians who take very different approaches to political issues some Some are fairly purist and absolutist um, others are much more pragmatic and I think it is probably a good thing to have both kinds of libertarians in the world um, It's a good thing to have people promoting and articulating the pure vision of a free society because that's that can be quite powerful and inspiring in a way that policy wonkism, right, isn't uh, you know, just sort of getting down into the 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 nuts and bolts of like how to reform local zoning laws uh is not something that inspires a lot of people. Um, you know, some people does and that's great, but um but so you need you need people doing the big picture idealistic utopian kind of stuff. Um but it also is a good thing to have other people doing the nuts and bolts policy thing, looking for um opportunities to make strategic partnerships with people on the other side of the political spectrum in ways that can meaningfully advance human liberty. And I think, you know, there, there have always been a mix of both sorts in the libertarian movement broadly construed, right? To the point where I think, you know, have, have libertarians made a lot of successes over the course of the 20th century? Well, not, not as libertarians, right? I mean, not like it's not like the libertarian party Accomplished much? Uh, it's not like um, you know Murray Rothbard made any big policy changes, but you did. You did have a lot of policy movements in the direction of liberty that were more or less inspired by libertarian ideas as they kind of filtered their way through the intellectual ecosystem, right? Uh, so in some cases, right, you had, you know, you had a libertarian book that was read by this person that was read by this person who then went to serve on, you know, President Nixon's policy, uh, Council of Policy Advisors, right, Um, like Martin Anderson, for instance. Or you had people like Milton Friedman who were pretty directly influential in a lot of big policy moves in the United States. And so you got things like airline deregulation, you got things like the abolition of the military draft. You got things like much greater movements in in the direction of uh, of sexual freedom, um, right? All of these are big, big wins from a libertarian perspective. Even if it wasn't libertarians themselves who were the proximate cause of of uh, influencing those uh, those movements, so um, so I'm 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 happy with the direction in which society is heading over the long term. Um, you know, I'm a little nervous about the moment that we're living in now. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of the strategy going forward, I don't, I think you know, the libertarian answer to what should our strategy be should be let people try a bunch of different stuff. Right. And, uh, and that's let a thousand flowers bloom and let's see, let's see what pops up. Another obstacle for
1: political libertarianism is that some parts, certainly a minority of the libertarian movement have tended to also harbor dark views on issues like antisemitism, or racism more generally. What's behind that in your mind, Matt? How does libertarianism, which is ultimately about the rejection of group identity in favor of individualism, tend
2: in some cases towards racialist thinking? That's a great question. It's a hard question to answer. Um, you're certainly right to to point out that connection. Um, you know, in the in the American context, there's been a significant when I say significant, I mean noticeable, like not not negligible um, overlap between sort of libertarian movements and more populist or even alt-right or nationalist or white nationalist uh movements. Um, you know, the vast majority of libertarians are not involved with those things, but it's it has been noticeable and noticed by by a number of observers that there there have been these kind of gateways between these, these various movements. Um, What accounts for that? Um, I think, you know, just to some degree um, to some degree, it's a function of personality, right? I think that there's something in the libertarian personality that rejects dominant narratives simply because they are dominant narratives, right? Uh, A kind of, um, you know don't tell me what to think or don't don't tell me what to believe or distrust the mainstream media so that a, a kind of contrarianism yeah a kind of contrarianism right so that if if you know the mainstream culture is preaching tolerance and equality and inclusiveness um there's a kind of libertarian who simply reacts against that because that's, that's the dominant narrative um, i think also though there's always been you know at a more fundamental level there's always been a strain within libertarianism that wants the state to get out of the way precisely because um, the state threatens to interfere with structures of domination and oppression and inequality from which those individuals benefit. And you see, you could see that going all the way back to um, you know, the Civil War in the United States. You know, if you look at the language of the South, um, you know, during the Civil War and after the Civil War, during Reconstruction through the Civil Rights Movement, there was a lot of libertarian rhetoric that was used there in terms of property rights. Right. A lot of the slave owners were saying, like, hey, you're threatening. The federal government is threatening to violate my property rights by taking away my slaves. so they're making a kind of argument in libertarian rhetoric but for an argument that most libertarians now would find, would find quite perverse. Civil rights movement, there was a lot of you know, very libertarian sounding rhetoric about states' rights and federal government overreach. Um, you, know, you wanted to keep the government out precisely because the government was threatening to overturn these, these unjust social structures. Um, and I think there's, there's probably still a lot of that today, right? There's a lot of vested interest in established systems of privilege that um, are reacting against federal intervention precisely because it's threatening to the, those privileges. This is this is an unfortunate strand in libertarian thought, from my perspective. And again, it's not it's not the only strand. Um, but I think that's it, it's it's not just an accident. Let's put it that way. I think there there are there are features both within libertarian psychology and within the the, the nature of libertarian thought itself It kind of lends itself. Uh, to this sort of use
1: a penultimate question as you worked on the book who outside of the usual suspects emerged as key libertarian thinkers that you think listeners ought to know
2: well i mean so when we when we wrote the book a lot of what we were trying to do was um to show people how broad and diverse the libertarian movement and in, in, in the intellectual history of libertarianism was right so most people that you know we talked to or you know, we you know, read about libertarianism. We're familiar with the main 20th century figures of libertarianism, people like Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman, and, and maybe Murray Rothbard. Um, but to our view, uh, a lot of the most interesting and exciting people were the were the 19th century figures. Um, uh, people like um, I, I like Herbert Spencer a lot. He was just because I didn't, and partly because it surprised me how much I liked him. I I'd never. Had heard that much about him before I started researching on this book. Nobody really talks about Herbert Spencer today, but he was a really interesting thinker and um, and one of the most sort of well known public intellectuals of his day. He was tremendously popular um, during the mid to late nineteenth century, uh, but but today nobody reads him anymore. Um, but but his social statics is still a really interesting and surprising uh, and fairly um, not not terribly challenging read. Um, but uh but if i had to pick just one person that i would encourage people to read uh, i'd probably go with a guy named lysander spooner who was a 19th century american libertarian anarchist and abolitionist um who i would encourage people to read not necessarily because i think he's right uh, about everything or even a lot of things <laughs> uh, but he's just he's so much fun and so interesting to read he was tremendously radical. Um, He was was one of the most radical opponents of slavery in the late 19th century to the point where, um, although he spent a lot of time writing about making legal arguments, he was a lawyer, about why he thought slavery was unconstitutional. He actually went well beyond that uh, and got to the point where he was printing up broadsides uh, to distribute to the the non-slaveholders of the South, he called this thing, where he was sort of encouraging people on libertarian grounds to... Um, arm any slaves. If you're a non-slaveholder, you can get weapons to slaves. I encourage you to do so. If you can capture slaveholders and hold them for ransom, I encourage you to do so because all of this is is just necessary to protect the individual rights of, of slaves, which are being violated on a massive scale. Um, so he was he was printing these broadsides. He planned to distribute them. Turns out that that John Brown, who was kind of traveling in many of the same circles as Spooner, got wind of Spooner's plan. looked Spooner up and said, like, look, you know, I'm actually planning kind of a a revolt on my own. If you distribute this stuff, you're going to kind of alert people that something is going on. So can you shut this down? So Spooner did. Um, So John Brown goes and conducts his raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, gets arrested. Spooner then hatches another plan to go kidnap the governor of Virginia and hold him for ransom on exchange for John Brown's release. So interesting guy. you know, just kind of a crank. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would like him in person. Um, he might be fun to watch in person. Uh, I'm not sure he'd be fun to like argue with or <laughs> have as a neighbor. But uh, just a fascinating person, and um, really a, a great person to read just to get a, a sense of of the very different directions that libertarian thought can be taken. Um, both on on the slavery issue, wrote a lot of cool stuff on property and intellectual property. It's a really wide-ranging thought.
1: Final question. As someone steeped in libertarian thinking and ideas yourself, what did you learn while
2: researching and writing the book? I think the main... (laughs) I mean, this is kind of a maybe more self-centered answer to the question than you were looking for, but um, the the main thing I got out of it personally was that... um, I really wasn't a libertarian at the end of the day. I was, I was convinced that I was uh, going into the book and, and I started writing the book as kind of a way of vindicating libertarianism uh, by showing how rich and, and, and fruitful the intellectual tradition is. Uh, but when I really got into it and started, you know, carving up just what is it that distinguishes libertarianism from classical liberalism? You know, what are the main theoretical commitments of of, of radical libertarianism as a as a distinct political ideology. Um, I really came to see that, uh, I, I just, di- I didn't see myself in that ideology and I, I didn't think on a more intellectual note, I, I didn't think the arguments worked terribly well. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a usefulness to having those kinds of radical ideas out there. It's, um, I like to think, of, I like to think of political ideologies as kind of lenses through which you can see the world. And it's, you know different lenses reveal different things they also distort different things in the world um and in that sense libertarianism is a is a useful lens i think that libertarianism can highlight injustices because of its radical commitment to individual autonomy that that other political ideologies are blind to um but i think you know in terms of a wholesale ideology that i would want to sign on to and commit myself to um I, I just don't think it's terribly plausible. I think the, the kind of classical liberal view of, of Smith and, and Hume and Locke and Kant is a much more plausible intellectual system. It's a messier intellectual system, but I think that it's, it's the messiness that, that makes it plausible. I think you know you try to fit, try to fit a complicated world into a simple ideological box, and it's, it's always, you're always going to wind up cutting things off that don't fit uh, in order to squeeze it in there. Um, And I think um, there's something to be said with simply learning to live with the messiness, learning to live without an ideological system that we expect to answer uh, all of our political questions and recognizing that um, those questions require the exercise of judgment, uh, which is something that a lot of conservative writers stress, right? That, That politics is about judgment. It's not something that can be... Boil down to any simple principle or set of principles that we can solve in a kind of axiomatic or deductivist way, right? Like we're not the Chat GPT-5 isn't going to be able to solve all our moral problems for us. Um, it's uh it's just more complicated than that. Um, and and so I think that's you know, in a lot of ways, that's the fundamental problem with libertarianism, right? There's there's a lot of more specific ways of, of fleshing that problem out. But at the end of the day, I think the basic issue is um. It's an overly simplistic lens for viewing a lot of the complicated problems that we struggle with as a society.
1: That's a wonderfully thoughtful answer. This has been a wonderfully thoughtful conversation about a wonderfully thoughtful book. The book is The Individualist Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. Matt Zielinski, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's been my
0: pleasure, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Attar guzman The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.